Welcome to the Positively Alive podcast. I am so glad you made it, and I can't wait to introduce you to our distinguished panel of speakers. This is a space where you will be able to learn more about HIV and AIDS, about the latest medical developments and the tremendous progress that has been made over the last couple of years. We will also elaborate on what it means to live with HIV today and how it is possible to live not only a healthy, but also a happy life. I have carefully selected our interviewees. Over the course of the next weeks and months, you will hear the voices, insights and opinions of policymakers, activists, influencers and some of the world's top medical professionals on the topic of HIV and stigma. There will also be the stories of HIV-positive people and their personal experiences on what living with HIV actually means to them. The main purpose of this podcast is to inform, educate and empower, to get the topic out of the taboo zone, to normalize HIV and to stimulate an open conversation. It is also intended to counter ignorance, prejudice, stigma and discrimination that is all too often affecting the most vulnerable people in our societies. This podcast is also a part of a wider online communication campaign about HIV and stigma. If you want to know more, please join our Facebook group at Positively Alive or visit our website at www.positivelyalive.org. Thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. I really hope you will find our content useful and purposeful. Looking forward to see you inside. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Positively Alive podcast episode. Thank you once again for joining us. Our guest today is Marlene Wasserman, also known as Dr. Eve. She's a couples and sex therapist, clinical sexologist, and sexual medicine consultant in private practice, specializing in cyber infidelity and intimacy trauma. As the founder of Dr. Eve 25 years ago, a South African household brand representing professionalism, pleasure, respect, and responsibility, she began to pioneer sexual health and rights education, information, and counseling in South Africa and throughout the African continent. Marlene is considered to be a highly influential woman in Africa, a place where women need female role models to talk about sexuality and sexual health. She represents South Africa and Africa on different international forums, showing incredible devotion to ensure that sexual rights and health for all are met. She's also an author, an educator, a media personality, and a sexual activist. She has written four bestseller books on women's sexuality, Sexuality Education for Youth, Aging and Cyber Infidelity. She's also a columnist in several major magazines and a blogger for both South African and international media. In January 2019, she was invited by the producer of Health Show, soon to, be, to appear on Netflix, to be a consultant on the infidelity and cyber infidelity segment. Dr. Eve Marlene Wasserman, thank you very much to join us on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Okay, I'd like to start with uh, your profession. Uh, you are a couples and sex therapist. Yeah. Clinical sexuologist and sexual medicine consultant in private practice, yes. specializing in cyber infidelity and intimacy trauma. Now, yes. these are a lot of different things together. Okay. Could you please elaborate a little bit on the nature of your profession, how that translates into a daily practice? So I started out doing family therapy and realized soon that children were symptomatic of parents having big problems. And so I shifted the children out the therapy room and just sort of focusing on the couple. And as I was working with the couple, they started talking about sexuality. This was pre-1994. Now, because you're in South Africa, 
you obviously have to be aware of the politics because the politics have an incredible impact yeah, absolutely. on our microcosmic world as well. So this was just pre-94 and there wasn't any training in sexuality. So in 1994, as democracy broke, I was able then to start training as a sexologist. So I became certified in America with an organization called ASECT. And I then got my doctorate in San Francisco in human sexuality. And that was 25 years ago. And with that, I decided because of the situation in this country, I really wanted to educate. I was really, really keen on educating people in this country around sexuality. And things synergistically kind of worked out for me very well because it was 94, there was democracy. And also there was suddenly an awareness, talking about the awareness of HIV AIDS in this country. So there was a desperate need for education. And I came in very uninformed, still very fresh out of my own training and went onto radio and said, I actually need to talk about sexuality as a way of preventing HIV AIDS. And because of that angle and because the timing of it was so right, I was really welcomed by the media and became the voice and pioneered sexual health in this country 25 years ago. That's beautiful. Now, you have moved from a purely medicalized focus on sexuality to your current intense interest in understanding people's online sexual and relational behavior and the relationship also to technology. Now, how has this shift taken place and what what have you learned from your field of experience? To state it more bluntly, are there any patterns that you have noticed when it comes to people's online sexual and relational behavior and their Uh, relationship to technology? Okay, so there's been a journey. I started out with the basic 101 around sexuality and sex education because we had nothing. There was censorship in our country. So people were absolutely deprived of information across the board. Nobody knew anything. So I started off with basic 101 sex education. And then as I evolved and the country evolved and people wanted to know things differently, sexual medicine became a profession with the birth of Viagra in 1999. And internationally, I was part of that birthing. I worked a lot with Pfizer. I launched Viagra in this country and we became very medicalized. So there was a focus on pathologizing sexuality. So, for example, women who had any kind of low desire, immediately they were pathologized into being sick, having an illness, sexual dysfunction, because you were supposed to have desire and supposed to be able to have erections and supposed to be able to have ejaculation. And the whole movement was very much around pathologizing and medicalizing sexuality. And after a while, it began to feel for me very uncomfortable because primarily I am a practitioner and I work in this therapy room from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day. I work with couples almost exclusively. And I noticed and realized that the behavior is very different from a medical approach. So I shifted away from that and those organizations that were very much pushing the pathology of people who were sick because I found that was very destructive. Then in about 2013, I was approached by Ashley Madison, which was a website in its time, quite innovative in its time, an American website that had its byline that people should be cheating, that this was a good thing to do. So I really didn't welcome them. They came into the country to begin to launch their website to South African people about how infidelity was a really good thing. And I was against it because I know that multiple partners puts you at high risk for HIV AIDS. And so I was very vociferous and very outspoken on all of my different media platforms. And they were obviously really interested in getting me on board with them, and I was really opposed to it. And then what happened was that uh, as they launched, people started coming into my therapy room, women, 
saying, you know what, I was curious and I went on to this website called Ashley Madison and I started chatting online to different men or to different women and I found that I was really having a good time. I'm happily married, but I'm finding that my life feels better and I'm more excited and sex with my partner is even better and I'm actually even getting offline and I'm going and I'm meeting people and I'm having sex with people. But I don't think it's infidelity because actually it makes me feel better and my partner doesn't know about it. So do you think I should be feeling shameful or guilty? Because I don't. And it piqued my curiosity and I thought there is something in this over here that I need to learn. And I went back to Ashley Madison and I said, actually, I would like to work with you and I want to do some research into this area of looking at what people are doing online because there's a revolution here. There is a huge shift in people's behavior online as compared to in real life. And so I began my research with Ashley Madison in 2013, and my book, Cyber Infidelity, came out in 2015. And with that, I shifted completely into looking at much more complex relationship structures at infidelity and at cyber infidelity, and started training people internationally on how to manage cyber infidelity as compared to infidelity. And with that, I then the world started changing to There was much more openness around sexual orientation, gender fluidity, and polyamory. And so I started attending conferences on polyamory, which I still do today, and begin to have a different extended view of how people can be in relationship, not just in a heteromonogamous kind of way. What does cyber infidelity really mean to you? Because for me, it's a term that holds a a lot of different meanings. Exactly. And that's what trips couples up. So the actual definition of cyber infidelity that I use is of two people, usually two people, can include more, who are in attached or committed relationships, Uh who follow the principles, the traditional principles of commitment, monogamy, and sexual fidelity, and find themselves technologically online chatting to each other, but keeping it secret from a partner. So if a partner were to find out what they're doing, they would feel betrayed and they would feel very heart sore around that. So a big part of the work that I do with couples who do come here because of cyber infidelity is work with what their definition is, and each one of them will have a very different definition, which is where the work needs to begin. We go back to looking at principles and values around what do I want in a relationship? Do I still want to honor commitment to you? Do I still want to have monogamy, which is just being in love with only you? Do I want to have sexual fidelity, meaning I only am going to be sexual with you? So they have to go through a process of really restructuring or rethinking their agreements around their relationship. Now, when I was doing the research, I asked myself, okay, cyber infidelity is a very interesting topic, holds a lot of different layers, but is there any relationship between cyber infidelity and HIV? And the way, especially when people, you know, they con- or engage in sexual relationships. Right. In my view, cyber infidelity is for people who are more prone to risky behavior. So I was wondering, is there a link between those? Okay, that's interesting. So what happens online is that a whole different part of us emerges. So a sexual part would emerge, a part that you never knew was there. Because people get online, not the intention of cheating. They just fall, as I kept talking about in my book, down the rabbit hole. You start chatting and in like three minutes, you're talking to somebody and then in 24 hours, it's become sexual and you send in images of yourself and you're exploring a part of yourself that you never ever knew was really there. And that's what's exciting, that you've opened up a part of you that you never knew was there. So online, you are very risky. You are going to be doing things that you don't do with the partner who's lying next to you. 
which is why it hurts so much when your partner picks up your mobile and scrolls through and reads your messages and sees the images because to them, you're a very different, close, conformed sexual person who doesn't take risks. So online, there's this freedom, especially for women, that this is what my research found, that women are way more provocative and open and risk-taking. So what I built into my research was to find out that when you actually get offline and you meet somebody in real life, do you take care around condom use? And are you interested in these HIV status? And people said no. They said no. No. That when I'm in real life with you, because I feel I know you so well, because I feel that I've spent so much time chatting to you, I trust you. So I'm straight away not going to insist on a condom which is different from real life, because in real life, people will use, in this country, will use a condom first, second, third interaction. Yeah. And usually by the fourth interaction, they don't use they a condom. Leave it out, yeah. yeah. But here, it's immediately, because I've had this feeling of, I know you, I trust you, even if they've chatted for 24 hours, there is so much disclosure that happens. It's called hyper-personal <laughs> communication that they feel they don't need to actually protect themselves when they meet you in real life. But that's not only a South African phenomenon, I believe. I no, because my... global phenomenon. No, absolutely. My sample was of 200,000 people from five different countries. So everybody was saying the same thing. It's amazing. Wow. I'd like to talk a little bit about HIV and stigma, one of the big yeah. focuses of, of, of our campaign. Now, even though HIV has become a chronic disease, we see that the amount of stigma surrounding the topic continues to be very high. Yeah not only in South Africa, but to certain degrees and in different degrees in many different parts of the world. Yeah. Now, Judge Cameron from the Constitutional Court, who we interviewed uh, two days ago, he called it, uh, he called our initiative fundamental, what we're doing, the campaign, what in his opinion overwhelmingly remains an epidemic of shame and silence. Would you agree with his statement when it comes to uh, South Africa? And has the country evolved at all in this, in this regard? So we went from an alarmist state and we've gone into an absolute state of neglect. That's really what I feel has happened. I used to push the idea of condoms. I used to joke and say, on oh, my grave, it's going to be said. She said, use a condom. <laughs> and I understand that mm. people don't use condom, which is a different conversation, why people don't use condoms, why people don't use protection. But it's got to be seen in a very holistic and systemic way that it's tied into the politics and economics of this country. And economically, people are just in the most terrible situation right now with, as you know, very high unemployment of 29-30% of people unemployed. So people are not really thinking about safer sex any longer. It's about survival. And so the topic or the conversation, the narrative around HIV AIDS has really gone off the table. It's just not spoken about anymore. Also, because of the drugs that were made available a number of years ago, it feels like people stopped talking about it. Now, also because there is access, some access to PrEP and to PIP, people talk about it even less so, which is really a problem because our numbers just keep rising. They're not diminishing. So one has to look at, you know, what is still driving this epidemic? Absolutely. Yeah. Stigma and silence is very much a part of that. But I think that we as healthcare providers are negligent and the media in not raising it enough yeah. because there's so many other distractions for people. Absolutely. But you mentioned one of the drivers of HIV. And I'd like to quote you. You said, we've got to address sexual violence yeah. in this country because this is what's really driving HIV 
in South Africa. What do you mean by that? Could you Yeah, I'm going to add on the economics and the poverty because we have a huge culture of blesses that I'm sure that you're aware of Absolutely, as well, yeah. of transactional sex, mm-hmm. which once again comes into the, the economics of the country and the poverty and the unemployment. And that ties into domestic violence as well. So if you look at what are some of the drivers, that would be it, that many, many women are driven into transactional sex and putting themselves at high risk with men who are older, usually married, and therefore have more partners, have had more partners, and infecting younger women who really are just desperate for for some kind of sustained living. Domestic violence is tied into all of this as well. It's like a triage of what of HIV, of violence, and economic disempowerment of men. So we have a scourge of domestic violence in our country where we've got one of the highest rates of femicide in our country, where there are men who are killing women every day as we speak all the time. And that comes out of a great need to be able to feel in control and powerful and many other factors that are there because there is a a cycle of violence that men are exposed to. We've got a very high incidence of violence against men, whether it be incest or their own childhood sexual abuse that they themselves suffer and being witness to violence. And so there is a cycle of violence that is set up. And we have an incredibly high incidence, one of the highest in the world, of women being violated by men. So in that situation, you don't have any kind of control to assert yourself sexually in bed, to be able to insist on condoms or safer sex or fidelity even. So the two go together hand in hand. And if we focus on bringing down domestic violence in some way, if we focus on employment, if we focus on the economics of this country and the politics of this country, we wouldn't have the scourge of domestic violence. There isn't enough attention at all on domestic violence in this country, which is something I feel terribly strong and terribly badly about. And therefore, it's tied in with HIV AIDS. So we cannot just deal with that, with HIV AIDS in a vacuum. You've got to give attention to the domestic violence that's going on for women. Hence the importance of a holistic approach, I suppose, yeah? Absolutely, a systemic yeah. approach to yeah. being able to deal now, with Now, you, uh, you, you have also said that the drivers for teens yeah. uh, to early sexual play include, include peer pressure, low esteem, coercion, sex for money as well, and pessimism and lack of communication with the parents. Yeah. Would you agree with, again, Judge Cameron, he said that we asked him the question, if you would have the possibility to focus on one demographic, which yeah. one would you choose to target? And he said, young young teenagers. Totally, 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 agree? To- totally agree. So what I did last year, I was invited by the Department of Education to come in and be a consultant and reviewer of the life skills program, the sexuality thread of it. And we did really beautiful work around that. And my suggestions, which I don't know if they've all been incorporated, but my suggestions were quite unique based on obviously international criteria and what's going on in the rest of the world. So I looked first at who is your average learner. And in our country, the average learner is a traumatized child. Traumatized child who comes into school every day, hungry, having witnessed or been a victim of violence themselves. And abuse, yeah. And there's no way that that child is able to think and to be present and to be making good decisions. So. We've, I suggested the integration of trauma interventions into every single program, into every single school, into the subjects of school, especially life skills and sexuality. You cannot just teach about sex in a brain that's on fire and traumatized because you can't make good, safe decisions around sexual behavior unless you're getting that brain still with trauma interventions. So I suggested that each class starts with yoga. Mindfulness has to be part of it. 
so that the kids are able to listen and to learn and to interactively be able to think critically about their sexuality and their sexual health. How are your suggestions taken? They were very well received. We'll see the outcome next year. The textbooks come out. So I think it's fantastic. We'll see <laughs> what comes out with, with those things. So yeah, so the HIV is threaded in throughout, through safer behavior, through consent, because consent is a huge discussion, as you know, throughout the world, which was yep. before the Me Too movement, but certainly is there as well. So yeah, we need to target young people. Absolutely. I think. All right. In, in one of your podcasts, because you're also a radio host, in one of your podcasts, uh, Talking Sex, A Necessary New Vision of HIV AIDS in Men Who Have Sex with Men, yeah. you have said that there must be a tandem between healthcare providers on the one hand and organizations dealing with mental health and psychosocial health problems in particular. Now, could you please elaborate a little bit on this yeah. statement and how well developed is this tandem here in South Africa? Oh, you know, you talk about stigma and silence. Mm. This is a very marginalized group of people, hugely, hugely so. From a cultural perspective, um, you know, I can just give you some kind of anecdotal story. When I first started on radio, which is 25 years ago, my second radio station was this radio station called Radio Metro, which is national. It's got one of the biggest listenerships in this country, 99.9% black listenerships. And I came in with a host who was just fantastic called Tim Medisa. And this was 94, 1994, 1995. And I started talking about, as I said, sexuality 101, about masturbation and about uh, the clitoris and vagina and penis size. And then I started talking about LGBTIQ people. And I was shut down with people phoning in really, really angry with me and saying, you're bringing in your white man's disease to us. We don't have transgender oh, really? people in the black community. We don't have lesbian or gay or bisexual people. We don't have men who have sex with men. And I remember Tim, this incredibly wonderful way he got me into managing it was he would say to people, whose culture is it against? You know, you're saying it's against our culture. Whose culture? Who's dictated what cultural norms are? And with the 25 years, I've been privileged to be able to witness such a huge change around that. However, men who have sex with men are still very marginalized. They don't have access to health care. It's not easy for them to walk into a clinic, which is usually for women, dominated by women. Yeah. So where do they even go to talk about it? Or where do they even go to access ARVs or PEP or PrEP? So it's a very, very difficult group of people to actually provide healthcare for or to minimize risk. Yeah. Dr. Trevor Hunt from the University of uh, the Ryerson University in Ontario, Canada, he spoke about the syndemic, yes. which is basically a syndromic epidemic. Yes. Talking about the additive, additive effect of psychosocial health problems Absolutely. that causes the risk of uh, increased transmission. Yes. What is your viewpoint on his analysis? Yeah, I had the privilege of listening to him, which is why I kind of based my radio show on him and loved what he had to say because I'm a systems therapist as well. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about the importance of looking at the contextual environment of the men, not just giving them ARVs because there's not going to be compliance. They're going to stop taking the drug. There are so many other factors in terms of poverty or economics or social environment or social isolation, the shame of the field, stigmatization, not knowing where to talk with other men. And he's created groups where men do hang out and are able to feel I'm not the only one that actually I also, other men also are having problems with chemsex, with drugs, with needing to manage trauma that they've had, which gets them to act out and to do risky behavior. So there are wonderful people like Doug Braun Harvey, who does wonderful work 
around working with men who have trauma, obsessive compulsive sexual acting out behavior, which is all trauma based, which is, by the way, why I did trauma training because yeah. um, of the enormous amount of trauma that exists in the world of cyber infidelity and infidelity. Now, um, in the past, HIV and AIDS focused very much on risk reduction. It was yeah. about condoms, condoms, condoms. Yeah. However, you have stated that people never stopped to consider the man behind the penis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting statement. Yeah. Could you please tell us a little bit what yeah. you mean by that? Yeah, I mean that there is such a focus on phallocentricity from the man and from men or women who have sex with them that you're not really thinking or treating or managing the personhood of this person. He has emotions. He has relationships. You know, we have this idea, this terrible idea that men just want to have sex and just men just want to be sexual with multiplicity of people, that men don't have emotions. And therefore we just focus on the penis and let's just cover the penis. But really you have to think about that men are seeking the same thing as what women do, which is connection, which is pleasure, which is also respect for self and respect for others. And self-love, absolutely. Totally. So it's not just a matter of saying slap on a, on a condom and you're going to be okay. There's fear of rejection. There's fear of erectile dysfunction. There are fears. This is a person. This is not just a penis that we have to just give our attention to. <laughs> absolutely. Now, you've been considered as a highly influential woman in Africa, a continent where, where women need female role models to talk about uh, sexuality and sexual health. Do you consider yourself a role model? And what are the main challenges right now when it comes to the position of women in South Africa and in Africa yeah. in general? I'm always humbled by that label, but apparently I do have that and I have to go into what I always tell my clients, I do have to go into self-pride and take acknowledgement for mm -hmm. being kind of a naive pioneer. I didn't go into this work thinking, oh, wow, you know, I want to be a media celebrity. I want to be a role model. I want to be a pioneer. I just organically went into it because I have a huge amount of passion for education and for people and for getting people out of pain and for making sure that people get the education. So I guess I feel proud. I've just been also put into a launch magazine of one of the top 40 influential women in this country. So I feel, yeah, that I have, and sometimes also great sacrifice to myself yeah, in I terms of my, my own personal life, my own sexuality and my own threat to myself. Yeah, it's not been easy in that way. So I didn't deliberately put myself into this place, but I feel very proud that I am honored and have been incredibly honored. And Are you positive about the situation of women nowadays in Africa? No, not at all. No, I feel desperate. I feel angry, as you can see, around the situation. I think a government does absolutely nothing about get 50% of women positions in parliament and they think, oh, wow, you know, we're really doing, practicing gender equity and nonsense. There isn't such a thing in this country at all. We live in a deeply patriarchal society. Absolutely, where there is absolute masculine toxicity. There's no doubt about that. So even women who are empowered, whatever that means, women who have reached positions of, of feeling that they are successful and independent, they still come home to bed at night with a man who is controlling and yeah. who is still filled with traditional ideas of what men and women's roles are and who has to be on top and who still has to be the domestic goddess and still who has to be the primary caretaker of the child. And she just loses her voice, which is why we have so much domestic violence also. There isn't consent. There isn't a notion of consent. So I push that notion of consent and sexual rights a huge amount and sexual health a huge amount and do a lot of work around sexual harassment as well as being aware of what your, your rights are. Not that it makes much difference. My radio show last week was, was really harrowing, really riveting. 
I used the work of somebody called Rachel Louise Snyder, who's written an incredible book uh-huh. on domestic violence and how it'll kill you. We were overwhelmed with people phoning in and telling their story of how they're afraid they are going to be killed every single day in their beds, in their homes. So we're overwhelmed with the amount of work that needs to be done for women in this country and for men. For men, because men, men, yeah. men, not two, primarily, men need the ones who, who are the ones who need to get rid of their toxic masculinity. And I have deep empathy for men. I really enjoy working with men and seeing their underlying childhood traumas and being able to help them heal from that so that they can be people, not men, people, who can live with empathy and know how to respect women. We have to bring change. So yeah, there's still a lot of work to do, but uh, oh, what you are doing, you know, at least helps helps a little bit. Um, a little bit. Moving us. Dropping the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> Now, what does the future hold for you, Marlene? Uh, <laughs> what is it that you envision for yourself and perhaps for the work that you are that you're trying to accomplish? As I age, as I get older, I am very, very devoted to my work as a therapist. I find that that is my happiest place is when I am in, in deep work, in deep intellectual work with people who have so much courage to want to explore relationships. I'm very fascinated with relationships and how people can find happiness, joy and passion and purpose in their lives. And to work with the, the dynamic of the couple for me is the most fascinating place to be the courage of people who actually go there. And also with new relationship structures. Singlehood is a big new relationship structure, friendship, and teaching and talking, working with people around opening up relationships and looking how to be happy. I just think that that's the essence of it, how to be happy and live with purpose. So that's one part of the work that I'm still very devoted to and will be. I think I could do that until until I die. I think I'll die in this therapy room, being very happy, locked into the therapy room. But the other part of my work that I'm very invested in is something called medico-legal work. And I pioneered that as well, where I have brought attention in the world of medical negligence and in personal injury, the rights of people to be compensated for the loss of sexual health. So anyone who's undergone any kind of medical negligence or personal injury, meaning car, motor vehicle accident or motorbike accident, and has got injuries or disabilities as a result of that, they have a right to be compensated for loss of sexual health. So I have become a sexual health medical legal expert where I would appear in court as an expert witness. I do a lot of assessments for people who have been injured in that way and would then give my reports to lawyers who hire me to be able to use that in terms of their claimants in court as well to say people have a right to sexual health. People have a right to feel the pleasure of being sexual and connecting with people. So that's another big part of my work. And I will continue to be training in trauma because all of my work is so traumatically based and I'm very invested in working with um, people's trauma. That's absolutely amazing. I I was uh, fascinated when I was reading your research and I'm even more fascinated today uh, (laughs) having you as an interviewee on this podcast. Marlene Wasserman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thank you very much. Yes, this was really a great, great episode. Thank you so much, Marlene Wasserman, also known as Dr. E, for coming on this podcast and for sharing so openly and passionately about relationships, sexual health, domestic violence, infidelity and cyber infidelity trends and the impact they all have on the HIV epidemic. I consider it an absolute privilege and honor to have been able to sit down with you and to listen to your fascinating views as an outspoken activist for women's rights in South Africa and on the African continent. Thank you so much.
Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that you learned something. If you haven't done so already, please join our Positively Alive Facebook group, specifically set up for this global campaign. It is a place where we raise awareness about HIV and educate people to counter prejudice, taboo and stigma. Whether you are HIV positive or not, our growing community is for everyone interested in learning more about the topic and to share positive and uplifting messages. Check also the Positively Alive YouTube channel where we upload a reduced video version of this podcast interview with the most important messages. I would also love it if you review this podcast and share your thoughts across social media. Let people know that you subscribed to the Positively Alive podcast. The more it gets shared, the more people we will reach and that is ultimately the intention of this podcast. You can tag me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter and let me know what you have learned from this. I am so looking forward to share with you our next episode. I also take this opportunity to reiterate and underline the importance of your personal financial contributions to this campaign. Never before in history have we been so close to a vaccine for HIV. Strangely enough, however, we see the national and international donor community pulling back, thinking that everything is in the pocket already. It is not yet in the pocket. We cannot afford a funding crisis right now, not when we are this close to ending the epidemic. A society without HIV where our children can be vaccinated against the virus, how cool would that be? And how much money this would save us as a society? So from a place of humility and love, please be generous with your donations. You can find the donation link in the text area of this podcast, on our Facebook page, on all our other social media channels and on our website www.positivelyalive.org. I count on you and so does the world. Thank you so much.